The next question is by Pally on the perception of one's own ego. What is, in your opinion, the most useful way to perceive one's own ego? For example, as an integral part of being human, as an annoying part of being human, as an enemy, as a companion, or as a useful helper, or even a tool to reach enlightenment? <laughs> well, that's a long list. You could probably do, do some of all of those, I guess, in, in a way. But uh, Now, remember, I define ego as a thing that is dysfunctional. You know, ego is that part of your self-awareness that is evolved in dealing with fear. So if you have no fear, you have no ego. If you have no fear, you can still make choices, you can still think, you can still, uh, you know, you still have an intellectual component at your being level. And it's not that your ego defines you, the choice maker, you, the intellect. It, ego defines you, the fearful intellect, making choices based on fear. So that's... That's ego, the way I define it. As it turns out, that's not a you know that's a pretty close definition of the way you know Freud defined it too. He just didn't know that everybody is fearful, therefore everybody has this ego. You know, so to him, ego is a is a normal thing. Well, everybody has it. You know, healthy people have it. You know, executives and people who are successful have it. Therefore, it must be normal and it must be something we have to have because everybody has it, even the people who are succeeding. So the attitude there is that ego is a is a is a necessary part of a person's self-image, and uh, I define it as ego is is an unnecessary part, but it's the part most of us have. So Freud's right; everybody does seem to have it, but that doesn't that makes it normal, but doesn't make it you know doesn't make it helpful. So it indeed is normal. So if defining ego as the reaction of one's awareness to fear, that, that's ego. Then ego is, is, uh, ego is, is a, is a, uh, a uh, what should we say, a pathological expression of consciousness. If you can think of consciousness, you know, it can express itself in many ways. Well, if it expresses itself in a way that is Harmful to itself, I'll call it, you know, that'd be defined as pathological. You know, so it's a pathological expression of self. The, the root of the pathology is fear. Now, so what we want to do is we want to get rid of that ego. Uh, because if we can get rid of the ego and the belief and expectations and all that stuff, what it really means is we're getting rid of the fear. Because otherwise we don't want to say, well, I'll keep the fear, but just suppress the ego. See, most of us end up in that basket. They try to suppress the fear, and with intellect, they force the ego under control. They'll take that, that ego and, and make it act right, even though it's not being right. It's acting better. It's acting more civilized. It's acting more caring, but it really isn't much more caring. It's just acting that way. So now they've kind of covered the ego over, and then they can pretend that the fear isn't there. That doesn't really work. The fear's still there. The ego's still there. They've just been wrapped up in a in a pretty in a pretty wrapper, so that uh, they don't scare us anymore, and we don't notice them. So, ego, a good thing to get rid of. Uh, fear is a better thing to get rid of because fear is at the root. Ego is a symptom of fear. 
So we want to get rid of the fear. But when somebody says, all right, what are my fears? Almost everyone will come to the conclusion that, gee, I don't know. I don't know what my fears are. Do I have any fears? Fears aren't easy to name. They're not easy to point out because we mostly deny them. We, you, we mostly make up all kinds of things that makes that fear necessary and good. If it wasn't for that fear, you know, you'd be in a lot of trouble. So we justify our fears in, in ways that make them hard for us to call them fears. We see it as just the way the world is and the way it has to be, and I have to be this way. It's just circumstances. But our fears are there. But now ego is not so, so, not so easy to mask. Ego comes out pretty obviously. And that's one of your, one of your, in your list there was, uh, you know, use ego as a way to grow up. Well, yes, ego is easier to see than the fear. Belief is also very hard to see. See, that's, that's the other side. Uh, you know, the fear creates ego, creates belief. Beliefs are, beliefs are very hard to point out because when you believe something is true, you don't think you believe it because you believe it. You think you believe it because it's true. That's the way it is, of course. You know, that's, that's the way. It's a true thing. So you don't look at that and say, that's a belief. It takes skepticism to call a belief a belief. Otherwise, the belief is just obvious truth. So beliefs are very hard to find. So that leaves ego as the one that's easy to notice. Because every time you have a thought that is negative, uh, what did we just talk about? Self-pity. Oh, woe is me. This isn't fair. You know, my boss isn't treating me fairly. And all of that is, is ego. And when you have a negative feeling, you have stress, you have anxiety, you don't like this, you have uh, self-pity, you have is issues with fairness and so on, that's ego. And as soon as you... You uh, notice, oh, look, I'm having this negative thing. You know, I'm really aggravated about the way I'm being treated here. Oh, that's ego because it's negative. What's the fear? Well, the fear is, you see, that um, I won't succeed. And if I don't succeed, my family and everybody else will think I'm, un I'm incapable. I'm, I'm not uh, competent to succeed. And this boss, you see, is not letting me succeed. So my, my, my parents will think I've failed because I can't get a promotion. I can't get a raise. I can't afford the things I need to afford for my family. So you've got these issues of competence, of being uh, worthwhile, of, um, I don't know, being, uh, being lovable, being a good provider. You know, all kinds of things going on with your, maybe with your masculinity if you're a, you know, worrying about your ability to provide for a family and so on. So you got all these issues that are that are fear-based that create your problem with this with this boss that uh, you know is, is treating you unfairly. You find out the fear, and then when you look at the fear, you can fix the fear and say, "Well, okay, fear. Uh, I can only do as much as I can do. You know, this is this is my life. I'm going to deal with it positively." I'm going to deal with it as gracefully as I can, and I will try to find another job. <laughs> I will, I will try to, you know, learn another trade. I will, you know, I've got a plan. I'm going forward, and I'm going to solve these problems and go on. But meanwhile, I'm doing the best I can, and you can't do any more than the best you can. And everybody else will just have to deal with me the way I am because I'm authentic, and here I am. Deal with me. And then if you find the fear, 
you let you give the fear you know you give that kind of of uh, you know it's like take your best shot fear you know and the fear will probably just disappear it goes away because most of these fears are not real things they're just they're things that we have created in our minds they're not real they literally don't have teeth and your family isn't going to call you a failure because you know you didn't get that promotion you see bad for you that you feel bad but you know they're happy living with you in any circumstances you know they're, they're you're doing all right it's just you that has the big fear so ego is something you can spot it's easy to spot trace it back to the fear which is the root cause then work to get rid of the fear don't work to shovel the fear under another layer of, of uh, you know obfuscation you're not just trying to paint over the fear or make it so that you can't see it anymore you're trying to get rid of it so that's that's the key so I'd say ego as far as what's it good for it's good as a way of showing you where the fear is so that you can get rid of it it's not really good for anything of its own other than it's a good pointer for how to get rid of your fear how to find that fear and anything in your life that is negative you can trace you know that, that's ego and it'll trace to a fear you know I say that like anything you know I'm sure somebody can think for a long time come up with exceptions and we could talk about it for hours but you know my point I'm talking about generalities under the fat part of the curve the things that apply to most of us most of the time that's the way uh, you know this works so yes we all have this ego and yes it's pretty obvious because we all have a lot of times when we're upset and angry and dissatisfied and that's a handle now you've got a handle on your fear find the fear accept the fear say all right I'll accept that if I'm incompetent and will never make anything of myself in life so be it at least I'll be an honest incompetent and I'll do the best I can and I can't do any more than that so leave me alone fear you know I'm just I'll accept whatever whatever I do I'll accept it it'll be me and uh, it'll be you know have my whole heart in it whatever it is and if that's not good enough for others then others will have to you know find better elsewhere but that's me and I'm gonna be me well you may find out that you, that the me that you are has some problems you may want to change the me that doesn't mean that you know being authentic doesn't mean you just accept yourself as it is and everybody else can just you know uh, you know has to has to like it or lump it it's not me the arrogant person that you know everybody else has to you know come to to meet it's you find out who you are be authentic and then try to grow try to change try to become more better more loving caring whatever you want to become make a plan move forward you know it's that kind of stuff it's not just here I am like it or lump it it's here I am hmm I see maybe I could change here a little bit I see that where I am is not really where I need to be I'm gonna work on that but you can't get to the point of saying I'm gonna work on that until you first say here I am you see you gotta start from someplace before you can grow to someplace else you don't just start at some nebulous I don't know who I am I don't know where I am I don't know who that's who this authentic person is in here I've never met him all I am is an image and how can you grow how can you change if you don't start from where you are so square one is always where you are and then you change so I'm not saying just be yourself and to hell with it everybody else has to deal with you I'm saying be yourself and that's your first step to growing up then grow yourself change yourself become all that you can become 
And if you're doing your best to do that, then that's all you can do. After that, you just have to, you know, life will have to deal with you and you will have to deal with it. But you're never satisfied until you can take that next step on the growth path. So that's really the success, the place of success you need to get to. And that's maybe the rule that ego can play if you're getting there. Now, if you don't have any ego, well, then you're done. You probably don't have any beliefs either, and you're already finished. But that does not describe the fat part of the curve. So we hardly ever talk about that because it uh, mostly doesn't exist. The next question is also from Pally on intellect and depression. From what I can tell, people with depression have a hard time to stop thinking. Can it be that depression will disappear if we manage to stop using the intellect? Is this a good example of intellect in the service of fear? And can you share your view on how and when to use intellect while trying to drop the ego? Would you share when and how you're using the intellect today in general and how the usage changed as you were gradually dropping your ego to today's level? Yes, this, this uh, interplay of, of uh, ego, intellect, being level, fear is, is an important thing to discuss because this is where a lot of people get stuck. They... They see intellectually that they have fear, that they have negativity, and that they have ego, and they'd like to fix that. So on an intellectual level, they see the problem and would like to fix it. But then they try to fix it. So they say, okay, I'm going to be uh, a, a nicer person. I'm going to care more about other people. I'm going to um, you know, give more of myself and demand less and so on. So they begin to act that way, act, not necessarily be that way. They begin to act that way because that's what the intellect does. The intellect can't make them be any way in particular. The intellect isn't in charge of being. The intellect's in charge of acting. You see? So they can't say, okay, intellect, I'm now going to be nicer. Well, that doesn't work. The intellect can't uh, instruct the being level, you know, how, what to be. The being level just is a reflection of what is. It's how you are. So the intellect says, I'm going to act nicer. So now the intellect says, all right, uh, I'm here in this path. I'm on this path. Here's the situation. Normally, I'd get mad here, but I won't. I'm going to smile instead of, uh, you know, grimace, and I'm going, to do, I'm going to do something nicer here. But then the intellect says, well, that's actually, it's feeling pretty good because people like me better, I'm getting more done, because I'm nicer to people, they're nicer to me, and I can see the point of this, but that anger, I feel, is just being suppressed. I'm still really pissed when those people say that to me, I'm just smiling and getting along with them, but now I've got all this uh, suppressed anger that's building up, and I don't know that that's too healthy. Okay, so what do they do with that? Well, they have to turn that corner between acting and being. As long as you're acting, you're not growing up. You're just, you're just acting more civilized. You're acting kinder. And that's nice because people will like you better and, and you will get along in the world better. But you're not going to grow up from acting. You have to grow up from being. So you have to turn that corner. You have to turn the acting into being. Otherwise, it never results in growth. 
Well, when you find yourself going, oh, man, I've got to suppress this anger because, you know, that really, but I'm going to smile anyway, you know, and, and I'm going to make a happy face of it and get along. Uh, you have to look at that and say, well, I'm acting. That's not enough. I need to be. I need to not feel that anger that I have to push down so that it doesn't show. The problem is still there. Go find the fear that produces the anger. Then deal with that fear and keep working on that until there is no anger that you have to push down. And when there's no longer any anger that you have to push down in order to smile and be nice, you will have succeeded. You will have grown up. Now you're a different person. You don't have to suppress anger to be nice. You're just nice because that's the way you are. The fear's gone. So you have to work with the, the fear. You have to work with the cause. You can't just work with the symptoms. The ego's a symptom. All right, you can, you can act nice, but all you're doing is like taking an aspirin for the headache. You're not really say what's the cause of that headache? You're just whitewashing the headache over with a, you know, with a drug that'll get rid of the symptoms. You still have that pain, but you don't feel it because the aspirin gets in the way of transmitting the pain signals, you see. So um, your body hasn't actually gotten fixed, but you no longer feel the pain because you've interrupted the signals before they get to the brain and express themselves as pain. So you're, you're doing symptomatic kind of relief. Now, fixing symptoms is very civilizing, and it will make your life better, and you'll see the benefits from it, but it's not growth. So what you do is you have to turn that acting into actuality, which means you have to find the fear, get rid of the fear to where you're not acting. So when you catch yourself suppressing your anger instead of saying, oh, oh I'm doing it. Look, I'm suppressing that anger and I'm being nice. Well, step one, okay, you've done step one. Now go work on that anger. You haven't actually succeeded until you've gotten rid of that suppressed anger to where you don't have any suppressed anger. You don't feel put upon. You don't feel abused. You don't feel woe is me. You don't feel, oh, I got looked over. I should have gotten this, not, not you know, somebody else. And I need to be treated this way, and I'm not being treated the way I need. And it's all about me, 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 and I, I, not getting what I want and I need in my way, the way I think it ought to be. Life isn't fair. And you get into all of that, and that's just you you know, full of self-pity and, you know, swimming in ego. Well, deal with that at the fear level. Find the fear, let it go, and if you still feel that, if you still start to feel sorry for yourself or feel that you have to suppress anger, let that be a, a note to you that you have not succeeded in growing up. You've just succeeded in being more polite. Polite is good. Light is better than rude, but it's not growing up. So you've started it. Now, most people have to start this way with the intellect. Most people can't say, I need to grow up. I need to not have all this anger. Okay, anger, I'm not going to have you anymore. It's gone. It doesn't work that way. It's not gone. It's still there. It's a deep part of you because this fear is a deep part of you. You can't intellectually wish it away. You have to change you. You have to change who you are before that fear actually goes away. And now you're a different person. You're not just that you're acting different. You are different. And then when you do those things that uh, are very helpful and nice and polite, you don't have any 
angst that you're swallowing in order to do that. You're not forcing yourself. You're not acting. You really are that way. Now, that doesn't mean that, that where you're headed is to make yourself, you know, uh, everybody's favorite, uh, you know, uh, being boy, you know, that though you're so kind and nice that everybody comes and trashes you and can do things to you and you, you just set yourself up to be taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera. That's just another fear, you see. Now you, you've just taken on another fear. It's not like that. When you, that's a fear people have. Oh, if I'm too nice, people take advantage of me. I need to be mean. I need to get angry and shout. Otherwise, people take advantage of me. That's another fear. If you are nice, people like other people who are nice. They respect other people who are nice, and you'll do better, not worse. But many people are afraid of being nice, afraid of being polite, afraid that you know they think their their arrogance is what gets them through life. If I wasn't arrogant, you know, I wouldn't be anything. That's because in their mind they feel like they aren't really anything. So the arrogance makes up for their inadequacy to be real. So they act arrogant. You see, so you need to be authentic. You need to be real. You probably need to start with your intellect because that's where we Westerners, you know, we left brain Westerners, that's where we start with everything is with our intellect. But you have to not trick yourself that acting is being. And until you've done something to change the fear, you haven't succeeded at growing up any. You've only succeeded in being more polite. Well, that's step one. That's nice. Be more polite. Better than being less polite. But it's not the same as growing up. So you just have to, you have to be aware of it. I'm still suppressing anger. I'm still feeling bad about these things. I'm just acting better, but they still make me feel bad. Well, why do I feel bad? Go back to the fear that makes you feel bad and deal with it. And the next time that happens and you feel bad, go, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I need to just let this go, and it's okay. I don't have to fight this. I don't have to choose to be upset. I choose not to be upset and go on. Well, you probably only get that half the first hundred times you try it, you're only half upset. But eventually, you keep that pressure up, and eventually it'll go away, and you won't get upset. You will have changed yourself. But it's not going to happen the first ten times you try it. The intellect, first, the, first, the intellect's going to be like 100% in control, and all you're going to do is acting nice. And then the next 10 or 20 times, the intellect's in 90% control. And then the next 20 or 30 times, the intellect's in 50% control. And eventually, you work yourself out of that, out of the fear, and you are different, not just acting different. But it takes time, and you have to have the, the desire to make the change and the will to keep working at it and not give up easily. It's a slow increment. You know, pulling yourself up to the bootstraps. It's a very slow growth process. Iteration by iteration. It's a it's an iterative process. Many people try for a week or two, get discouraged, quit. You can't do it in a week or two. You gotta figure I'm working on this the rest of my life. I'll be working on these kinds of issues all the rest of my life and might as well start now and start working on it and see how far I get. If you have that attitude, then that's a lot better in that, oh, I see something's wrong with me. I need to fix it, and I need to fix it now. Oh, my fix didn't work. 
Oh, maybe I'm just unfixable. Maybe I just can't do this, you see, and then you go down the other side. It's just better to have this attitude. I'll do what I can. I'll keep working on it. I'll keep uh, trying to let go of that suppression of, of negativity until it doesn't exist anymore. And little by little by little, you work your way through it, iteration by iteration, and eventually it'll surprise you that it doesn't happen anymore. It's not even there. Small steps, not big steps. Big steps just frustrate us because it's hard to, hard to make a big step. Little steps are more doable. It's like being an athlete. An athlete has to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You can't say, I'm going to go run a marathon. I'm going to run 20 miles at the uh, average of at least six minutes a mile. Well, it's an easy thing to say, but it's a hard thing to do. And you say, well, if I can't, if I can't do that in two weeks, I'm going to quit. You know, obviously, you're not going to do that in two weeks. You may not do that in two years. You may train very hard to do that in three or four years. But if you want to do it and you keep focused on it, you can do it. You can run that 25 miles in an average of six-minute miles. You may not win the marathon. That's hard to do because there's only one out of you know, 300 people that are going to do that, but uh, you can still do a lot. That's what I mean by pulling yourself up at a bootstraps. It's just a very slow, iterative process that takes a lot of focus to do. I know I've run over about four or five of your other questions, too. That's why I kind of, I know you had a whole lot of questions, and a lot of them were kind of in, well, many of them anyway, were kind of in this focus of the same thing. I'm working on it, but it's not working. What I'm doing isn't, doesn't seem to be working. I keep uh, just suppressing things rather than changing things. That's why I went a little more detail, because I know you had that in some of your other questions. The next question from one of the MBT forum users. Um, you've said that we should learn to live gracefully with uncertainty and stop trying to manipulate events in an attempt to produce certain outcomes. But isn't it equally important for us to aspire and to have goals? How do we know when we should, when we should aspire and persevere and when we should let go of the compulsion to control and manipulate to achieve our aims? Okay, and a lot of people get confused with that. Um, well, we'll go back to some basic definitions. Ego was the, um, you know, that's fear-based. That's with the uh, awareness uh, reacting to fear. Well, if you let's just say for a minute that uh, you have somebody that has no ego and they don't have any fear. Well, what do they do? They still have an intellect. They still think. They still make plans. They still, uh, you know, do analysis. It's not that when you get rid of fear, your intellect disappears and you no longer exist because, you know, there's no ego. It's just your pathology stops existing and you become a whole human being. You no longer have a subconscious because you're conscious of everything. You're conscious of your whole being. You're conscious of your instincts. You're conscious of why you do whatever you do. You're not pushed around by this subconscious needs and whatever because you have a subconscious. That's, a, that's also a pathological uh, expression of consciousness is that it has a, a secret part that your intellect doesn't know about, you see. That's, that's part of the pathology. 
So you become a whole person. So in as much as you use your, your awareness to serve love, or you might want to say to not serve fear, then that is thinking, planning, and analyzing that's very profitable for you. Inasmuch as you use your awareness to serve fear, which represents an egos, beliefs, and that kind of stuff, it's a disservice to you. Okay, so that's how you break that out. So you can say, well, if you just always just take however it comes and deal with it, that means you can't ever plan anything. Well, no. Obviously, you can plan something. You know, if you're if you're 14 years old and you want to go to college and become an architect, well, you better start planning because you you can't just become an architect because you want to become one. You can't just say, okay, I'm 21 now. I'm an architect. Doesn't work that way. You need certification. You need education. You need to go to school. You need to be able to pay for that or get or get loans or get scholarships. You you got a whole lot of things you have to plan if that's what you want to become. Well, that's good planning. Well, I better buckle down and get good grades because I'm going to have to get into school that will eventually allow me to become an architect. You need the plan. You need a plan for your economics. You need to plan to make your house payments and your car payments on time. You know, you have to plan. But you can do that if you have intent serving love. Okay, that's healthy. You have intent, well, I should say intent and awareness serving love. You have intent and awareness serving fear, and you have problems. Okay, now why do I make these statements about how people need to just accept? Because I'm starting from the assumption that I'm talking to people under the fat part of the, part of the curve and that everybody I'm talking to is just full of fear and ego and beliefs because that's pretty much the way we all are, right? That's... We'd have to go through an awful lot of people to find one that didn't have any fear, egos, and beliefs. So most of us are just riddled with fear and ego and beliefs. So because I start with that assumption that that's the state of the people I'm talking to, then I'm telling them you have to change at the being level, not at the intellectual level. You need to have... You need to accept uncertainty gracefully. You need to let life happen and stop trying to manipulate it. I'm talking to people who... If they don't see that and think about that and see the difference, manipulating it is what comes natural. Forcing things to come out the way you want, the way I want them to come out is natural. You see, so I'm, it's, a confusing, it's a confusing thing because I'm talking to people who I know over-manipulate, people who try to run their lives, who try to fix everything, to, you know, they put all, they put 90% of their attention on how do I make things happen that are best for me. And that's the way they go through life. And because of that, I tell them, don't do that. Don't try to make things happen so they're best for you. Okay, but now that confuses people because they say, well, but I want to go to school and become an architect. And if I never think about anything that's best for me, how can I do that? You see, it's two different things. They're, they apply. The first one applies to most of us most of the time, but we still want to encourage that thinking, that analysis, and, and that intellect working for love and not for fear. And there's a part of it that does that. So there's some percentage of the time we all are thinking and we all are, have our awareness applied to love things. 
to caring things. And that's good, and we need to encourage more of that. And then there's the 80% of us that's applied to fear things and believe things. So when I'm talking to people, I tend to talk about the 80% more than I talk about the little percent, but both of them exist. So it's not that planning and trying to manipulate things so that when I graduate from high school, I'll be able to get into a good college to become an architect. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. That's good. That's a good thing. You say, it's that I'm trying to say that most of the time, most people spend a higher percentage of their energy trying to manipulate stuff to suit their ego and their fear. That's what they do. They manipulate life because of their fear and ego, and that that is dysfunctional. And as much as they can use their their awareness to manipulate, you could still call going getting good grades in, in high school in order to be able to go to a college because you really want to be an architect. You could call that a manipulation. You're manipulating events. All right, then, you know, it's not that the manipulation is bad, but we can say manipulation in the service of fear is not healthy. Manipulation in the service of love is. So that would be a way if you want to call all of those manipulation. You can just call planning manipulation. If it's a plan, you're manipulating something. Well, planning is fine. But you have to realize that trying to plan your life to suit your fears and egos is not fine. So maybe I've said something that confuses more people than I helped, but hopefully that's a way that you can separate those two things. So I'm not saying planning's bad, and I'm not saying that uh, manipulation has to be bad. I'm saying that most of it use it poorly most of the time because we focus our, the way we deal with life is to make things come out that's good for us. And most people, if you said, well, you know, you're always trying to make things come out that are good for you, most people would think about it and say, yeah, sure. Doesn't everybody? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? You know, we keep trying to make things work out. So it works out for our family, for our spouses. You know, everything wants to work out for us because, of course, we know best for everybody. And uh, if they just did it the way we thought, then everybody would be happier. Right? That's just ego and arrogance and other sorts of things. And most of us feel like, yeah, that's what we should be doing. Everybody does that, and that's natural. Well, it's common, and it's normal, but it's not helpful. So there's, there's, no, uh, there's no black mark on, on uh, thinking or using your intellect. There is a black mark on using your intellect to serve your fear, you see. And because that's what most of us do, that's mostly what I talk about. All right, Tom, the next question comes from Greg. It's on creativity. What is creativity exactly, and where does it derive from? How can we increase it within ourselves? In MBT, you state that much of it comes from an intuitive connection to the other system database within the big computer. Can you elaborate on that as well? Okay, creativity is a fundamental aspect of consciousness itself. Okay? Creativity is how you express yourself. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of expressing self, who you are. And 
You know, so it's a natural, I mean, a consciousness expresses itself. Consciousness communicates. It shares data. It expresses itself. And, and the creativity is part of how you can do that. You can express yourself in new ways, in ways that represent you. You're a, you are a, uh, a, a unique consciousness. You're a unique, a unique being, and you express yourself in unique ways. And that, so, so being creative is a, what do we call it, synthesis. You take all of your, all of your experiences, all of your information, all of your knowledge and so on, and all those pieces can work together to produce something greater than just the pieces themselves. So you take 10 different pieces of knowledge, and after that you go, aha, and you come up with something that is, more than just those 10 individual pieces, okay? That is lowering entropy, right? You've just lowered entropy. You took two things that weren't ordered, that weren't together, that you, 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 they weren't uh, uh, kind of working together, and you saw a way that they all worked together for some new concept. That's being creative. That's also lowering entropy. So the whole idea of consciousness lowering entropy, you can say lowering entropy is a creative aspect of consciousness, Evolution, you could say, is you know, is consciousness being creative. So if we look at it like that, creativity is the synthesis of experience into something new, something bigger. It's the synthesis from all the experience that then gets the aha, or the synthesis of an artist's experience that gets to paint or sculpt or do something that's expressive connects with other people. Other people look at it and they get it in their own way. Not necessarily the same way the others got it, but they get it in their own way. It means something to them. Okay, That's because they're taking parts of their own experience base, using that art as a catalyst, and making some kind of aha synthesis out of, out of that. So that's the, you know, Part of, of consciousness, part of just of evolving, of uh, lowering entropy, is being creative, seeing things in a new way. Getting rid of fear is seeing things in a new way. You can say getting rid of fear is an is a act of creation. You're creating something new. You've taken what you've got, and now you're creating a different person, a better person, a lower entropy person. So creativity is very fundamental. It's not, uh, it's not something that's like two or three levels down on the chain of cause and, you know, uh, cause and effect. It's, it's very fundamental to consciousness itself. It's making, making more out of what you've got, more than it, than it is now. That's, that's the growing up. That's the pulling yourself up with the bootstraps. It's a part of our evolution. So we are all creative beings. Consciousness is creative in its expression. And when it does, you grow. The next question comes from an MBT forum user from Brublon. What does the word truth mean to you? Is there a truth and can we know it? I'm guessing that the question like that comes out of a... Of a uh, belief that all truth is relative. Okay, there is a 
group of uh, philosophy that says truth is relative. What's my truth is not your truth. You know, um, what you, what I think is good and, and beneficial and whatever is not necessarily what you do. And truth is, is relative. It's situational. Well, there are aspects of things that are situational. In, you know, different cultures do things in different ways. So if I, at the end of my meal, belch loudly, that's considered rude. If another culture that happens, that's considered a compliment, you see, to the, to the quality of the food and the quality of the dining experience. So, so one person's rudeness is another person's uh, compliment. So you could say, you know, the truth is like that. In one, one culture, truth is this way, and the other culture is something else. But I don't really call that truth in a, in a fundamental sense. That may be truth in a, in a lighter, more um, application sense. Um, I would say fundamental truths are not relative. Fundamental truths are fundamental for everybody. That's not relative. So that runs afoul of those philosophers that see everything as being relative. There is no right. There is no wrong. It's all relative. Okay, and this culture, you know, murdering people you don't like is fine. In that culture, it's not. So in one, it's it's okay. And what is it? All ethics are relative. It's not so. There is a fundamental truth or a fundamental right and a fundamental wrong because it gets down to the fundamentals not of our culture, not the fundamentals of a society or even the fundamentals of uh, physical matter reality. It gets down to the fundamentals of consciousness. Ethics turns on does this act increase or decrease the entropy of the system? Say a good decision, good and bad, is, is this does this decision increase or decrease the, the entropy of the system? If it, if it increases the entropy, it's a bad decision. If it decreases the entropy of the system, it's a good decision. And I don't mean just for a moment. I mean over a long term. That's why I say of the system, not just of the moment, but of the system in general. Long term, what's the effect on the system? So there is a good and bad, right and wrong and truth is what we call, you know, is what is. You know, that's true means it is that way. So truth can, you know, I shouldn't say truth, but the way things are can be relative. But that's not my sense of, of that word. So I guess partly we have, a, we have a word problem and a definition problem. You know, we're, we're talking about how do people, how do different people define different words differently. And that's not really fundamental. That's cultural or something else. Fundamentally, if you are overrunning somebody's else's free will with your own and you're doing it because it's better for you, you see, then that falls in the category of higher entropy, not a good thing. So you can see we back up now into all of our actions and things that we do. We can kind of say, are they moral or not moral? based on what it does to system entropy over the long term. And that's the same. So those things are fundamental truths. It's true that it's always good or it's always wrong to raise or lower entropy of the system.
Now, we're talking about raising and lowering entropy system. That's not to say that we're talking about actions. Okay, when we talk about actions, what's good, what's right or wrong, true or untrue, about an individual's actions? Well, it depends on the intent of those actions. Morality does not turn on an action. You can't say this action is moral or that action is immoral. That's where the relative the relativity comes in because we look at actions and we can see that the same action can be both moral and immoral based on the intent. So then people get the idea, well, it's all just relative then because an act could be moral or immoral. It depends on how you, you know, the, the situation. Therefore, right and wrong isn't absolute. It's just situational. Well, that's because they're trying to peg right and wrong and morality to action. That's the wrong thing. Action is relative. Intent is not. Intent now has to do with your motivation. And your motivation can go back to, is this intent one that raises or lowers entropy for the system in the long term? Is that the intention? Is the intent to lower the entropy or to raise entropy? If my intent is that I'm going to go to the bank and grab all the money in there you know, for my own, what does that do to the system? Does that raise or lower entropy in the system? You say, well, now my intent uh, makes the difference to that. So it's an intention. Now, some actions, it's hard to believe that the intent could be good. So we can say, well, these actions just seem to be bad. Well, that's because it's very hard for people to imagine that action coming from a good intent, you see. Now I have to explain good intent and bad intent because somebody will say, well, you know, evil people might think they have good intents, right? Well, my idea, I'm going to make the human race purer, so I'm going to get rid of everybody that, uh, you know, doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. And it's a good intent. I'm making the race better. So the thing is, there's, there's little intent, little eye intent, and big eye intent. Little eye intent is the intent that comes from our intellect. Okay, that's the intent we make up, and that's the intent that thinks that you're going to make everything better for everybody in the long term if you get rid of everybody that doesn't have blonde hair and, and uh, blue eyes. See, that's a, that comes from an intellect. There's capital I intent, which comes out of the being level. And at the being level, that intent is, you know, a, a negative a negative one. The idea that, you know, um, what's it called? Um, well, anyway, uh, you know, getting rid of everybody that doesn't have uh, these characteristics. You know, that is, intellectually, you can convince yourself that that's for the good of everybody, but that's a lie. It's fear-based at the bottom. It's control-based, fear-based going on at the bottom level of that. So we don't let an intellectual intent qualify as, an, as this, what we're talking about. That's, that's a different thing. So intent at the being level is where your, your morality comes from. If your intent at the being level is, I want to control, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to be the leader, I want to be whatever, then that's a self-serving intent that's not about other, it's about self. And the things you do there, because of that intent, will raise entropy, not lower it, and that makes it a bad, not good. Okay. So that's how we, that's how we do uh, 
morality in MBT. We basically look at what's the effect on the system long term. And we're talking solely about intent from the being level, not from the intellectual level. Because an intellectual, a, a wacko, what are we talking about, uh, people before uh, psychopaths or whatever that may decide that, that life is so terrible that what I need to do is kill everybody and I'll save them from this terrible life. You know, well, that comes from the intellect. That's not a good intent, even if they convince themselves that they're doing everybody a favor by, you know, you know, by killing them. That uh, does not qualify as a bona fide intent at the being level or as a good intent. Anyway, that's a little, a little bit about that. Uh, morality, what's true and what's not true. Is everything relative? Is all right and wrong relative? No, it is not. There are fundamentals, and the fundamentals come not from our actions, but from the effect we have on the entropy, which is basically a being level intent. So there is an absolute way to decide whether something is moral or not. It is not just relative. A lot of the questions that Pally had, I think you have answered collectively. Um, if you agree with that, Pally, um, please uh, speak up and let us know if that has encompassed most of your questions. Um, I think, uh, as Tom mentioned, he touched a lot of them, but uh, if possible, I would like to maybe address them in more depth, at least uh, one or two, if we have the time. If not, we can just take them over to the next session. Pali, which question would you like to include in Tom um, answering further? Yeah, well, I, I would be interested in uh, the question focused on whether we really can be selfless. Um, uh, I don't already touched the part of good and bad. Uh, I'm talking more about good and bad uh, in, in the terms of uh, actions, not of uh, ultimate good and bad. So uh, should I read it or would you like to? Yes, of course. Okay, so um, I... Uh, I came to the conclusion that selfless behavior is possible only if we are willing to repeatedly do something for others, even if it always causes some sort of suffering or physical pain to us. Uh, the way we do something uh, like this is probably just by getting rid of uh, the whole notion of good and bad. Uh, that, that means in, if pain or suffering is inevitable outcome of some action uh, that we consider correct or needed to help others, we won't mind it. And uh, uh, that probably means we could not uh, desire to feel good in other situations either because uh, that would uh, just tr be a trap of uh, being in the duality of good and bad. So uh, what's your view on this uh, idea of mine? Okay. The, I think you have a, an assumption here that's causing you a problem, and that is you believe that if you're constantly or consistently doing things that are in the service of others, that uh, sometimes they will you know, cause you pain, and that that pain is kind of inevitable from the doing. If you're going to do these things, then you're going to do them at your own expense, and it's going to cause you pain. Well, that's really not the way it is. If they're causing you pain, 
there's a very good probability the reason they're causing you pain is because of your own, again, fear and ego. You be nice to those people, but it's causing you pain. Probably what you should do is grow up so that they don't cause you pain. It's not true that you being, being uh, uh, considerate or serving others is going to cause you pain. Serving others should be causing you joy, should be causing you happiness. And if it's causing you pain, it's because you choose to feel that pain. You choose to define that as bad for me, not good for me, as pain. Um, you can redefine that as not pain, that that's good. It's a good thing. It's a you know it's it's not something that's a that's a terrible thing. So my my guess is not knowing the particulars of what you're thinking about, just in general, if doing nice things causes you pain, probably that pain represents a fear and ego. That if you didn't have that, then you wouldn't experience the pain. Instead, you would experience the joy. And doing things for others will make you feel good and make you feel happy. Now you're thinking about something where you maybe sacrifice something for somebody else. You know, well, okay, I've got a friend and, and he's poor, so I'll let him live in my house and I'll go live under the, you know, under the bridge. Well, that's not necessarily just being nice to somebody. You know, you have to look at the whole thing. What are you doing for entropy there? Uh, maybe your friend needs to stay. Maybe he needs to live under the bridge himself. You see, maybe that would help him take charge of his life and start to change it. And by you, you know, giving him your house to live in and you living under the bridge instead, you're being, you know, you're actually taking away his incentive to change or do better. So you need to look at the whole thing. It's not just a matter of giving everybody what they want. It's what are you doing and how does it affect the entropy of the whole? And if you do that and you try to optimize the, the uh, growth and the quality of consciousness, the result of that should you be happy and you being satisfied, not you, uh, not you suffering. So the idea of helping other people doesn't mean necessarily giving them whatever you want at your expense. It means that you're trying to help raise the, the quality of consciousness overall. And sometimes giving things to people or giving them services or giving them stuff isn't on their road to growth. Matter of fact, it's you become an enabler for them not to grow up, you see. So it's a big picture look at, at what's going on. And I've found that if you really are doing things that help the system decrease its entropy and have a higher quality of consciousness, those are joyful things. It's a, it's a thing that everybody wins. It's not a well. In this case, these people win, I lose. You know, or I win and they lose. It's not a. It's not a. Somebody has to lose if somebody else wins. It's. It, they all turn out to be everybody wins, kinds of things. And it's. I don't see the pain as a as a result of this you know process of of being moral. I see joy as a result of it rather than pain. There is one last question that Adam has, and that is, do you have any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> I haven't even thought about New Year's resolutions. No, I don't. I didn't, uh, I didn't sit down and try to make any uh, particular resolutions for New Year's. Um, you know, maybe I should, but... Uh, Trying to 
order my life by intellect is kind of something I don't do much anymore. I found it's not a very effective tool. I, I tend to live my life uh, spontaneously. I'm not a very well-organized person. I don't uh, plan a whole lot. I mostly just be and, and interact and do as things come up. So that's, that's not my strong point. Now, I'm not saying that's the way everybody should be. The world needs people who are organized and, and who, uh, you know, plan and get things done. That's just not my strong suit. You know, that's, that, uh, fortunately, that is other people's strong suits, and they can pick up some of the slack that I, that I leave when uh, I don't pay a lot of attention to those kinds of things. But uh, typically, my intellect is not uh, in charge of most of what I do. I have to make plans, too. You know, I'm, I get talks to give in various parts of the world. You know, in 2015, my schedule's just about packed full already. So, obviously, I have plans. I have uh, talks I have to get ready and prepare for. You know, I got things I need to do. I just can't stumble through life taking it all as it comes. I, I have to do things like everybody else. But mostly, I don't do, uh, I don't use my intellect to run my life. My life just kind of runs itself, and uh, I don't think too much about it. So I'm not in the habit of making New Year's resolutions. They probably wouldn't work out and would turn out to be bad resolutions in the first place because the intellect has a hard time knowing, you know, these kinds of things. These are things that the being level does, and uh, my intellectual level and being level are pretty much, uh, pretty much the same. They get along pretty well. But uh, I think the, the, the intellect has learned to mostly sit down and be quiet. <laughs>